for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Thursday night, popular HGTV designer Deborah Salmoni is teaming up with real estate investor and renovator Scott McGilvery again for season four of Scott's Vacation House Rules. And she joins me to give us a sneak peek of what exactly to expect. Even in these times of alternate facts and rampant conspiracy theories, history, it seems, is indeed repeating itself. Political commentator and author Jared Yates Sexton lays out his case in his new book, The Midnight Kingdom, The History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis, and he's here to tell us all about it. A close Canadian friend of jailed Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich joins us. The 31-year-old is being held in Moscow on espionage charges, the latest victim of the Kremlin's so-called hostage diplomacy. We find out how those closest to him are coping and rallying to support him from afar. But first, it is the biggest and most powerful rocket ever built. SpaceX's 120-meter Starship blasted off on its first test flight today. Elon Musk's company was aiming to send it on a round-the-world trip starting from the southern tip of Texas. It didn't make it nearly that far. After only about four minutes of flight, it blew up or was blowing up. So why is it being hailed such a success? We find out. Learned a new word today, a new term, really. Rapid Unscheduled Disassembly, or RUD. But before you have RUD, you need liftoff. And this is what that sounded like. They were excited in Texas this morning. The biggest and most powerful rocket ever built, SpaceX's 120-meter, 400-foot Starship, blasted off on its first test flight today. Elon Musk's company was aiming to send it on a around-the-world trip starting from the southern tip of Texas. It didn't make it far. Four minutes after blastoff, this. And that appears like the automated flight termination system has been activated. Right. I believe that was supposed to say rapid unscheduled disassembly, but it didn't. I got the wrong clip. But rapid unscheduled disassembly is what happened. What does that mean in English? It blew up. Uh, the debris plunging into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, you know, usually, again, RUD, the explosion of a, or breakup of a vehicle, usually an airplane or a rocket. So that's what happened today. Now, this was always meant to be experimental. And you know SpaceX does things that other, you know, that maybe you wouldn't see if NASA were doing it. Uh, the rocket was carrying no passengers, no cargo. This really was a test. It plans to use Starship, this massive rocket, to send people in cargo to the moon and ultimately to Mars. Images showed several of the 33 made engines were not firing as it climbed from the launch pad, reaching as high as 39 kilometers. The booster apparently was supposed to peel away from the spacecraft about three minutes after liftoff. That didn't happen. And then the whole thing sort of blew up and fell into the sea. Um, so instead of that best case scenario of a one and a half hour flight around the world, it, you know, it ended after about four minutes. Needless to say, former astronaut uh, Katie Coleman, NASA astronaut, says that even though the explosion was a disappointment, the real success was getting the rocket launched at all. We are absolutely a big step ahead. Even though it's not as many steps as we plan to take today, um, we are definitely a step ahead. And that is because so many things had to go right in order for that to leave the pad. 
That was uh, NASA astronaut Katie Coleman. Uh, Chris Hadfield, someone from closer to home, retired Canadian astronaut, tweeted, huge accomplishment, huge lessons, onwards to the next attempt. Well, joining me with more on this is space historian Jordan Bim. He's a postdoctoral research fellow at the Institute on Formation on the Formation of Knowledge at the University of Chicago. Jordan, thank you. You've had a busy day. I sure have, Ben, but it's good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, so, so there was a lot of eyes on this one, um, and you know, because it's just such a massive, massive thing, right? Oh yeah, it is the largest rocket that humans have ever launched um, so far. So it is—it's massive. Yeah, it's a big deal. So tell me a bit about what was expected from today, because now, in hindsight, of course, we're seeing lots of, of sort of people playing down expectations. But when this was, I know it was delayed a few days ago, but what were the expectations for today? Well, like with any launch of a developmental spacecraft, the expectations were all over the place. So we did actually, like people uh, like me who do watch uh, space pretty closely, we did expect that this was a possibility. The hoped-for outcome, of course, was this orbital test flight, or what some people call a, a trans-atmospheric orbital flight or a marginal orbital flight, where it wasn't going to go all the way around the world, but it was going to uh, essentially impact the ocean just north of Hawaii, uh, and that would sort of, uh, you know, be the the end of that mission. Uh, the booster rocket was supposed to uh, impact the Gulf of Mexico, so that was the hoped-for outcome of this mission. Of course, we didn't see that today. We saw that cartwheel maneuver, and then. The uh, what what it, I've learned today is actually called a commanded flight destruct. So this, <laughs> really? this is not an RUD technically. It was not. Uh, there's actually right. somebody. Yeah, there there is a a person whose job it is. They're called the uh, range safety officer, or the RSO, and this is a position that's existed since the dawn of the space age. And they essentially sit in front of a button, and if things look like it's going wrong in the launch, it is their job to press that button and essentially destruct the rocket before it can veer off course and perhaps uh, hurt some people. So uh, it oh. was a commanded flight destruct in the end. Uh, it did activate destruct systems on both the Starship and the booster uh, itself. Uh, so that was sort of the, the end of our test today. So this, this is one of the many possible outcomes that people thought would happen. Uh, and this is just uh, the way space goes. Uh, Italia, maybe we could play that first, that short clip again, that eight second one, because I think that's exactly what I was getting confused by. And that appears like the automated flight termination system has been activated. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now that makes sense. It wasn't a rapid unscheduled disassembly. It was an automated termination. So they took it down, essentially. Exactly. That range safety officer did their job today. You know, they're the type of person who doesn't like to do their job. They want the launch to be successful. They want to not push that button. Uh, but today they pushed that button and, uh, you know, Kept, kept folks who were there gathered at uh, at uh, Boca Chica and Brownsville, uh, Texas. They kept them safe. So that was their job. Do, do we have, I mean, I guess we have a sense of what went wrong, that the separation didn't happen, right? That's correct. But um, like with any test launch, there is going to be an investigation. Uh, they're going to learn so much about the vehicle from this test today. That's why I think um, it's a bit of an ambiguous event that happened today. Some people look at this and they see failure. Other people look at this and they see success. Um, you know, the people who see success see a wealth of data of this vehicle in flight. You know, you can do so many tests on the ground, you can model things using computers, but there is nothing to replace an actual flight test when the rubber meets the road or the uh, stainless steel meets the upper atmosphere in this case.
Right. So even just those four minutes, I, th- I think if you're if you're not involved in this, if you're just a layperson like myself, you see something that pr- presumably that expensive go up and blow up, and you think, oh, that mustn't be good. But I, but you're right. With four minutes of data, they've learned. They know more about about Starship today. They know oodles more today than they did yesterday. Exactly. So people have been focused on a couple possibilities of what went wrong. Of course, it's way too soon to tell. But, uh, you know, right now people are looking at things like uh, some debris that was ejected right at the moment of ignition on the pad. Uh, They're looking at uh, some of those 33 Raptor engines uh, did not light up, did not ignite at launch, and a few failed during the flight. They're also looking at the failure of the the super heavy uh, booster to separate from the Starship spacecraft. Uh, the staging uh, maneuver essentially didn't occur. So all of those things are, are going to be looked at by the SpaceX engineers as they do this sort of after-event analysis. Um, I think one more thing uh, that's really important to point out is that there's a different design philosophy at play here than we're used to seeing. Uh, you know, NASA, you know, has, has a very slow and steady approach to these things now, especially in this day and age, our moment, like we saw the SLS lo- uh, rocket uh, launched in November, was delayed many times because they had to get that right. There was no more, there was not another SLS to launch if that blew up. But SpaceX has actually embraced what they're calling an iterative design philosophy, where it's okay to fail uh, because you have a bunch more starships, uh, you know, in production, and you can just quickly cycle uh, the learning from the, the test today into the next one, test fly that and see what happens. So whereas NASA famously said failure is not an option, <laughs> SpaceX has yeah. embraced failure as part of their design philosophy. I suppose for all of us who grew up really watching NASA, not anybody else, watching NASA do this, we always think of failure as being, being failure. And in this case, you're right. They, they, they've learned a lot here. It's still, you know, it still boggles the mind to watch a private company do this kind of work. Uh, I mean, even today, I know SpaceX have been around for a while, but uh, just to see this, this, this massive rocket on the launch pad today was impressive in of yeah. itself. It sure was, and it really is a it's a turning point or a milestone in this sort of uh, slow motion handoff we're seeing from you know NASA, this large government agency that was founded in the Cold War to compete with the Soviet Union. Of course, you know uh, the battle days of the Cold War are are, are behind us, um, and now we're seeing uh, the baton being passed to smaller private companies. Um, but it's interesting to note that NASA is obviously not going away. It has uh, the Artemis program. And uh, they're going to be collaborating with SpaceX as part of the Artemis program. So NASA does not have a lunar lander for the Artemis program. They're relying on Starship to do that job. So everyone at NASA was watching this test today, you know, looking at their calendar for the Artemis 3 lunar landing and wondering how much this sets them back because uh, there's a Starship variant called the Human Landing System that they're essentially going to use as their lunar excursion module for the Artemis 3 lunar landing. We're talking SpaceX's rocket today, Starship it's called. Uh, space historian Jordan Bim is with us to talk about that. So how much does one of these things cost? When I was watching it blow up, you were talking about their iterative, iterative approach to, uh, to all of this. It must be pretty costly when one of these things go, goes up in smoke, so to speak. That's true. It's not as expensive as NASA's space launch system, the SLS rocket, which costs billions of dollars. But each one of these represents tens of millions of dollars for sure. Uh, Elon Musk has stated that he hopes that uh, once the Starship system, you know, becomes reliable and they start launching, you know, you know, pretty regularly, the cost of a launch can come down to about $10 million per launch, which is astronomically low for a space that launch. That's the goal. I'm not sure they're going to make it there. And I do have a bit of um, 
you know, skepticism. I remember NASA saying the same thing about the space shuttle, uh, you know, uh, in the early 80s, uh, that it was going to make, uh, you know, access to space, you know, economical and democratic. That never quite really got there. So, there, you know, history does sort of give us a grain of salt with that. But, uh, you know, there is a, a sacrifice of money that definitely comes from this design approach where you're willing to sacrifice materiel to gain knowledge. Uh, and the hope then is that that leads to a more robust, more reliable system. So you fail early, fail often, fail on Earth so that you don't fail up in space. Yeah, as you mentioned, failure is an option. Big plans for Starship, too. I mean, a lot of people may have just heard the name today, uh, given this sort of yeah. very spectacular launch. But uh, the, the, SpaceX has huge plans for, for Starship, and it, it, it's integral to a lot of other stuff that's going on in space. It sure is. I think one thing that's important for listeners to realize is that, you know, we're talking about Starship uh, and just a singular Starship today, uh, but make no mistake, they are planning to make hundreds of these eventually. Uh, and the, and the, the, the notion that they are reusable and then they can be launched at a cadence that's like very quick uh, and that they will carry more tonnage up to between 150 to 250 tons to low Earth orbit and beyond, you know, this really, really widens uh, the opening to space uh, and will allow a lot more human activity in space. Elon Musk, of course, is animated by this dream of uh, sending humans to Mars to establish a permanent human settlement on that planet. NASA, though, is planning to use um, uh, Starship for its Artemis program, as I mentioned. And then there are commercial uh, spaceflight applications. There are people who have actually already paid for flights involving right. a Starship. So the, the Dear Moon uh, flight around the moon, and then uh, separately, Jared Isaacman, who commanded the first all-civilian space flight Inspiration4 using a SpaceX Dragon capsule, wants to go to space again as part of his Polaris Dawn mission, which will involve a starship. So many people are watching this test uh, today with their own missions in mind. And I might add, too, that Canadian astronauts like Dr. Jenny Seide Gibbons and Josh Cutrick and David Saint-Jacques are also watching this uh, hoping that maybe one day they will ride uh, a starship to the moon and Mars as well. That's right, because they may be eligible for that next Canadian seat after Artemis II. A exactly. We all know Jeremy Hansen is going to fly the Orion space uh, capsule around the moon, uh, but not actually land. Uh, so I'm sure that his other fellow Canadian astronauts are uh, wondering if their future maybe holds a, uh, a ticket on starship. Amazing. What happens now? I mean, they, they take all this data and they go back and, and start adapting, I guess. How long before we might see another test launch? That is the big question. So um, what I'm hearing right now is it's going to be a few months. Uh, it could be longer than that. But uh, I, I feel like they want to iterate quickly at this point. You know, uh, we saw a high altitude launch and landing of Starship back in May 2021. That, of course, did not involve the stacked booster. It was just the spacecraft on top. It only reached an altitude of 10 kilometers. It proved the launch and landing capability, though. I don't think we're going to wait another two years to see another attempt at this or first orbital flight. Um, but yes, the next step, of course, is to nail this orbital flight. Uh, and then after that, uh, you know, stick the landing. So prove that it can go around the Earth in orbit and then land that Starship, land that booster back in Texas, you know, really prove out the, the, the promise of reusability. Well, even though you, you corrected me on this, and, and thank you for that, rapid unscheduled disassembly is still a word, <laughs> I, a term I learned today. Uh, Jeremy, thank yeah. you so much for your time tonight. <laughs> I appreciate it. Jordan, rather. Have, oh. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome, Ben. Great to be with you. <laughs> This next story, I, I don't know how much you've been following this, but about three weeks ago, just a little over three weeks ago now, a Wall Street Journal reporter in America named Evan Gerskovich uh, was arrested. 
uh, on espionage charges in Russia, in Ekaterinburg, and brought back to Moscow. And he appeared in court this week at a bail hearing. He was denied uh, bail or denied an appeal to change the terms of his detention on espionage charges at a court hearing in Moscow this week. Uh, a bit of background about him. He is, again, a U.S. citizen. His parents both escaped the former Soviet Union. I believe his father is from St. Petersburg. His mother is from Odessa, which is now in Ukraine. And they went to New York. They met there. Uh ended up in New Jersey, had a family, including Evan, and the kids, he and his sister, speak Russian. So they were very much brought up in both cultures. And he began his journalism career elsewhere, but worked at the New York Times for a while, worked at the Moscow Times, which is a local English language speaking paper in Moscow that I've read and seen and so on when I, when I used to uh, do reporting there as well. Uh, but he suddenly found himself, he was working for the Wall Street Journal, going back and forth, and suddenly found himself under arrest. Uh, here's the Global News report from Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini that aired when Gershkovich was arrested. Hidden under a jacket and rushed into a courtroom shrouded in secrecy, Evan Gershkovich pleaded not guilty before a Russian judge to charges of being a spy. Evan was taken away from here with a decision to hold him in custody, said his lawyer, who wasn't allowed in the room. Gershkovich is an accredited American journalist in Russia working for the Wall Street Journal arrested in the city of Yekaterinburg by Russia's Secret Service for what the country's defense ministry says were actions not related to journalism. Referring to a statement alleging he was stealing secrets for the U.S. government. The Wall Street Journal vehemently denies the allegations. This espionage charges are ridiculous. It is not safe at this time uh, to be in Russia. The reporter had recently been covering Russians' attitude towards the war and its economic impact. This political strategist was interviewed by Gershkovich in Yekaterinburg and says they never discussed the military complex, adding he wasn't an enemy of Russia. The targeting of American citizens by the Russian government is absolutely, completely unacceptable. Accusations of espionage are not unheard of in Russia, but for journalists, it's rare. Nick Daniloff, the man in the glasses in this photo, was the last to be detained for spying in 1986 and was released in a prisoner swap, something the State Department isn't discussing this early in the process. Our number one priority continues to be seeking uh, consular access uh, so we can meet with this individual. This arrest comes amid escalating tensions between Russia and the U.S. and could further isolate Vladimir Putin and shows just how fearful the Kremlin may be of journalism that isn't controlled by the state. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So there you have it, some background on Evan Gershkovich. The 31-year-old faces up to 20 years in prison on those espionage charges if convicted. A little bit of background, uh, he went to university in Maine. He was an avid soccer player and aspiring journalist, and there he met Toronto's Jeremy Burke. The pair became fast friends, a friendship that has deepened and endured ever since. Uh, Jeremy was speaking with Evan just a week before he was arrested. Uh, for Burke, like so many of Evan's friends and colleagues, it has been a very difficult three weeks uh, for the family as well, obviously, including watching him make his first court appearance on Tuesday. But as the diplomatic situation is handled by governments, the president called his parents a, few, a little while back. There's clearly stuff going on behind the scenes, although we're not quite sure how much negotiations happen happening. The friends are, are really focused on raising awareness about his case and sharing more about Evan and his story. Again, originally from Toronto, Jeremy Burke is a New York-based writer now. His newsletter is called Cultivated. He is a close friend of Evan's and he joins me now. Jeremy, thank you so much. This must have been a really tough time for everyone who knows him. Yeah, thank you so much, Ben. Um, we really appreciate the opportunity to continue to share Evan's story. 
Tell me a bit about your story with Evan. Um, like so many people in life, you, you kind of met at university and became sort of your sort of kindred spirits in many ways. Yeah. So so Evan and I first met uh, way back when we were 18. Um, we were freshmen at, at Bowdoin College in Maine. We really became close, I want to say. We had an overlapping friend groups. So we really became close um, our junior year. And that was sort of that situation, which I'm sure many of you will be familiar with when, you know, some of your friends go abroad and you find yourself getting closer to the people who, you know, were, were sort of acquaintances at first, right? Once that happened, Evan and I really, we really just liked all the same stuff. We just, our senses of humor absolutely aligned and we, we became pretty inseparable um, that year and that continued throughout senior year. After college, Evan, he, he actually went to Thailand to do a fellowship right. with Princeton in Asia. And my now fiance, um, then girlfriend's family was living in Thailand at the time. So I spent time there and Evan and I hung out in, in Bangkok for a number of months and did some traveling together. And that's really when you get to know a person when you're sort of traveling um, in these foreign countries. After Evan returned, uh, he moved into my apartment in Brooklyn and we lived together for two and a half years. And, you know, we were basically from when we met uh, when we were 18 to we became friends when we were 20, we were inseparable, like all throughout our 20s. Um, he's just really one of my closest friends in the world. We laugh at all the same things. We despise all the same things, if that yeah. makes sense. You know, and we, we spent a ton of time just talking and chatting about our lives um, as, as people in the early and mid 20s do. Um, and, and we really, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like, I, I really feel like Evan is one of the most kindred spirits I have in this world. Um, and, and that's why this this is so hard. It has. Tell me a bit about it, because I've been reading a lot about him, obviously. I know that having grown up in Princeton, New Jersey, his parents uh, came separately, actually, from the former Soviet Union, but met in, in New York, uh, that he was brought up with a lot of, uh, with his foot in two cultures, really. He was both a, a very much an American kid, but also very much uh, knowledgeable about his about his Russian upbringing. He speaks perfect Russian and so on. He, he was, yeah. And his parents worked really hard to provide uh, you know, quite a nice upbringing for Evan and his sister, Danielle. I mean, he, you know, he was the captain of a soccer team in high school. He loves sports. You know, he had a ton of friends. Like, he, he's always the most gregarious, sort of popular person. And that 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 remained well into college as well. But but Evan, you know, he, he, he cared deeply about his heritage. And I think his parents tried really hard to impart that onto him. I mean, he spoke the language fluently. He ate Russian food at home. He knew how to cook Russian food. Evan loves to cook. And he also sort of, you know, watched Russian cartoons and read Russian literature. So he cared very deeply about understanding not only where he was from, but but where his parents were from and try to sort of bridge that divide. He, he, he felt very strongly about that. And, you know, even when he was 20 years old in college, uh, we had a lot of deep conversations about that. I mean, we're both Jewish and, and so there's some similarity there. But, you know, his story was or his family story was one of resilience to, to the extent that, uh, sort of fascinating to him, fascinating to talk about. Yeah, like like so many Russian Jewish families that left uh, left in the 70s and the early 80s and either came to North America or went to Israel. There's there's a huge diaspora uh, now that, that followed in similar footsteps. It, it, it then comes as no surprise that when Evan became uh, interested in journalism that he found himself back in Moscow right in 2017. Uh, you know, I, I was there a little bit earlier than that. It's always been a tense place to be a reporter. Uh, you must have talked about both the benefits and the potential dangers of that. We absolutely did. I mean, there was a lot of long late night conversations in our apartment about uh, whether this would be a good move for him. At, at the time, Evan was a news assistant to The New York Times, and I was working at Business Insider. And, and you know, we were sort of young journalists starting our careers and, and obviously had a lot to talk about. When the opportunity presented itself at The Moscow Times, 
and I sort of struggle with this now, but I was very supportive of his decision to go over there. I thought, you know, A, it would be just a really good career opportunity. I mean, Russia was changing. He spoke the language. He understood the culture. He was fluent in the world of Russia, and he could really go there and make an impact. And, and you know, I, I told him as much. Secondly, we did talk a lot about the, the dangers of doing that. And, and at the time, I, I think I was a little, maybe I was a little misguided, but I didn't really think that the risk, I thought the risk was overstated. You know, I, I, Russia was open, people were working there. Uh, he, he still had friends that he knew just from his personal life that lived in Moscow and loved it. And so, you know, I, I sort of encouraged him to go and and, and wanted him to do this and, and follow his dream. I, I don't want to speak for his parents, but I, I can tell you what Evan told me about a lot of conversations he had with his mother specifically that, you know, she was really worried about this. I mean, like you said, they came from then the Soviet Union in the late 70s, and they had a very different conception of Russia. They sort of knew and understood what the place was like, the way sort of the authoritarian rule of law and the judicial system right. works there. And they were they were very, very worried about Evan going there. But ultimately, you know, Evan's the kind of person where if he gets an idea in his head, he is going to do that, right? Like, th there's no convincing him of otherwise. And ultimately, he got to a place with his mother and his father where they supported it. And they felt like, you know, this this could help Evan really understand Russia. But the Russia of late 2017 was obviously very different than the Russia of early 2023. You know, things changed pretty quickly for, yeah. for Evan there. I suspect his parents would have understood just how arbitrary it can be, right? Just how you you just don't know. And, that, and therein lies T tell me a bit about about what about just how you heard how you heard that he had been like, I'd read the I read the articles about how you sort of fell off fell out of contact for a few days and then then the phone call comes at least you know his bosses would have found out but his parents too yeah I, it, it was really difficult I mean I you know I just I, I sort of paused because you know <laughs> again like you know I've said this before like while this is not happening to me uh, it, it's really hard to see that happen to such a close friend and basically um evan and i have been you know we, we we're in touch a lot you know the last conversation we had was about uh, a week and a half prior to his detention we were planning for one of our mutual friends weddings and he was going to fly back to new york and stay on my couch and we were just discussing that um, we we're also sort of catching up about other college friends and classmates and you know sending memes back and forth like just as two guys chat but i i had no indication that he was worried about anything that he was doing anything excessively risky. I knew he was flying back into Russia. He was in London at the time. So I said, you know, good luck with your project. Like, can't wait to see you soon, man. Like, that's basically it. The day he got captured was a Thursday, or he was captured on a Wednesday. It was a Thursday morning when the news filtered to us. I, I had slept in an hour later than I usually do. I woke up around 8 a.m. with, you know, about 70 text messages, um, missed calls from my parents, and, and they usually know you know, not to call me before eight in the morning. Right. right. And and my fiance at the time, um, she, she's in law school and she was up early getting ready for class. And, you know, I, I looked at my phone and, and kind of knew something was up and she gently woke me up and said, Jared, like they, they got Evan. Um, they got and Evan. Wow. Yeah. That was, that was a, a startling way to, to wake up and, and begin your day. Um, I think it took a couple hours for me to really process it. Just a lot of our mutual friends know that you know, Evan's one of my best friends. We're really close and people were concerned about me, but that's not what I was thinking about. I was thinking like, how, wh what can I do now? Like just, just stay action oriented. Not that I have very much control over the situation, but you know, it, it's startling when, when it's your friend and, and, you know, you turn on CNN and there he is 
you know, with, with a hand on his head and, and getting shuffled into a prison. Um, that, that is something I just frankly never expected to see in my entire life. Jeremy, you watched him. I guess the first chance you would have had to see him again was during that bail hearing. And, you know, I watched that and, and he seemed, I mean, it's hard to tell, right? But he seemed, he seemed relatively up uh, considering the circumstances. Evan has a supernatural sense to be okay in these situations. And so, you know, if there's any of my friends who can handle that and handle that with grace under, you know, the immense amount of pressure he's in, it's Evan, right? You know, it, it was heartwarming to see a smile on his face, to see that he stood tall in the face of these ridiculous allegations against him. At the same time, seeing your friend in a cage, uh, a glass cage is, you know, I... I Personally, oh, it's, it's I had indescribable. Really... It's indescribable. Yeah. There's no way. There's no. I mean, we've seen Brittany Griner there. I mean, you've seen people in the past, Alexi Nalvani, but then to see someone you know, someone you're close to, yeah, I can't even imagine. It, it it puts a a real period on how dark humanity can get. Um, I think that's been one of the stark realizations for myself and and all of our friends. You know, back in New York, um, who who all remain really close. I mean, we we've been trying to take care of each other through this. But, I, you know, it's it just it's hard to put into words how difficult that is to see. And not only just about Evan, but just about what that says about people and what their capacity of what they can do to each other. And yes, of course, you know, you read bad news and, and you understand that these things go on. But when it's so close and personal, that is, is really, really hard. And, and I, I don't know if I'll ever... I, I, frankly, I don't know if I'll ever be the same after yeah. that. And it's not even happening to me. Like I said, it's Evan, but it's just so close to home. You managed to get him a sign, some signs from home, I, I heard. Yes, we were able to get him a T-shirt or one of um, his, his Russian friends who lives in Moscow was able to wear a T-shirt that, that we had a group of us had sent um, with the faces of Evan's parents and his sister on it. And from what we understand, he, he was able to see it. Evan was not allowed to talk to any of his friends that were at the hearing, but he, he acknowledged it. And we really were happy that we were able to get him that. And, and just to show that we're here, we care, doing everything we can. Hopefully it's helping, but we just wanted to get him that little bit of hope uh, in, in this pretty hopeless situation. Yeah, try and keep his spirits up while everyone else tries to fight on the judicial side of this. I mean, uh, I know his parents had a call from the president. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal is a very powerful organization. Uh, there's a lot of people in his corner. But at the same time, uh, this is this is the Kremlin, right? This is not necessarily about this is not about due process. It's not about anything that you can fight fairly. This is about something completely different. How do you feel so far about what's happened over the first three weeks and a bit in terms of the fight to try to make sure that he, that he gets that they can get him out of there, frankly? The outpouring of support, both among the Dow Jones, Wall Street Journal's parent company, the US government, the highest levels, the State Department, the White House, as well as Evan's family and his really large friend group has been unbelievable to see. I, I'm so incredibly proud of us all coming together, getting our messaging aligned, working every single morning, every time we wake up just to fight and fight and fight and get Evan home. I'm incredibly proud of that. At the same time, realistic that there are only a few people in the world who can really impact the situation. Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, right? And, and, Ultimately, what we want to do is just keep the pressure on them to continue fighting to bring Evan home. 
besides spreading awareness right now, there's just not so much that I as a, a private citizen, independent person can really do except for this, except for talk to people like you and reach out and just make sure that Evan's humanity is centered in the story, that this is not an opaque international incident, that he is my friend, he's innocent, and we want him home. And we're going to just continue hammering that until until he's back. Yeah, I mean, that always becomes, even with Brittany Griner, that becomes, the person becomes what they are in this situation, not who they are. And sometimes the humanity gets lost a little bit. I know how tough that is on those who've, who've lived through these things, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, we really just don't want this to be a headline. I mean, I think already you can see certain aspects of the situation getting politicized. Evan is a devoted son. He's a brother. He's a really good friend and he's an unbelievable journalist. And that's the story we want to tell about Evan. And ultimately, we hope that that is what will help get him home. Um, We're going to just, like I said, continue hammering that every single day we can. Uh, We're never going to give up. Well, Jeremy, I think any of us and all of us have good friends and best friends understand just how difficult this must be for you. I wish you strength. And of course, I wish Evan strength as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate it. If you're looking online, hashtag free Evan is the hashtag they're using. The NATO Secretary General was in Kiev today. We're going to go there after this. Stay with us. NATO's Secretary General made his first visit to Kyiv since the Russian, the further Russian invasion 14 months ago. Now, Jens Stoltenberg was there uh, talking about NATO, talking about the alliance. He even came out and said openly that Ukraine deserves to join NATO and is pledging continued support for the country uh, as uh, both sides. I mean, Vladimir Zelensky was there as well, and they spoke together today, of course, marking now 14 months since Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine. Uh, Stoltenberg also said there's more financial and military support from Ukraine for Ukraine from allies that has been promised or is being delivered. Today, we have had new announcements from allies. Uh, Netherlands and uh, and Denmark are announcing uh, 40 new Leopard battle tanks. Uh, And then uh, uh, the United States has announced a new package of 325 million extra U.S. dollars. There is Jens Stoltenberg. Again, this was a big, I mean, a lot of these visits, keep this in mind, whether it be Joe Biden or, these are really about symbolism, right? Um, This is about, and, you know, Moscow was not happy today. Of course, one of the justifications they've given for this war amongst the many strange justifications they've given for an unjustifiable uh, war invasion is that uh, they want to prevent uh, Ukraine from drawing closer to the European Union, but specifically NATO, right? Specifically NATO. So having the NATO uh, Secretary General there today was a big deal. Uh, the Ukrainian president, as I mentioned, Zelensky, spoke with uh, Stoltenberg. He said it was time for the military alliance to offer his country membership and that Kyiv needs more weapons to fight Russia. That's certainly something we've heard a lot of from Ukraine. Uh, it, it is true. Uh, and he also said that uh, there's a big NATO summit coming up in Vilnius in July, and he said it would become historic and that he had been invited to attend. So that will certainly be another, right? I mean, you know, the the Baltic nations are right on uh, the Russian border, more or less. So this will be a big uh, moment for NATO and Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, Again, it comes at a really crucial time. And we don't talk about the war as much as we used to on the show. I try to talk about it every once in a while, just just so we can 
keep an eye on it. We know what's going on, right? This has been a really, this is a really vital juncture for this war right now. There's been some diplomatic stuff going on. The French president was in China talking about, you know, sort of peace and negotiating something and getting the Chinese on board with the Russians and everyone gave him a hard time about it, rightfully so. Uh, we're seeing a few cracks within, I mean, clearly in America and as we head towards an election next year in 2024, there's been, um, there's been battles, there's been some partisan battles over what to do next in Ukraine. And uh, it's spring, right? They they suffered through a really tough winter. Uh, there were attacks, daily attacks on infrastructure uh, by Russia on civilians and infrastructure, plunging the country in the dark for most of the winter. Uh, many areas going without electricity for hours and hours and hours on end, day in, day out. Keep in mind the weather there is much like the weather here uh, in Canada. So you can imagine what it would be like to be without power for long stretches of time, day in, day out over the course of the winter. And now that spring has come, there is talk that Ukraine will go on another counteroffensive like they did last year, um, sort of maybe a little bit later in the spring, but this is something that's been in the works as well. So uh, again, today, NATO allies, apparently, I mean, this was brought up today, NATO allies have trained tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops. Canada has been part of that and provided already $71 billion US worth of military aid to Ukraine alone. I wanted to get a sense of what the mood was like on the ground in Kyiv these days, the reaction to uh, the NATO Secretary General making his first ever visit, or at least his first visit since Russia's invasion 14 months ago, and just what was expected and what the, what the next few months looks like. And to do that is a regular on the show. Kira Rudik is a member of Ukraine's parliament, a leader of the Golosh party, and she joins me now. Kira, welcome back. Thank you. Hello, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. So a big day in Kyiv. Uh, for the first time since the beginning of, uh, of this latest Russian, Russian invasion, the head of NATO was there. Uh, tell me a bit about... Uh, the reception, the symbolism of that for uh, for you and for, for everyone there today? Well, we are indeed incredibly delighted to have uh, Mr. Stoltenberg in Kiev, and we take it as the next step in the preparation for the Vilnius Summit. We have uh, extremely high hopes for the summit. And of course, the, our goal is that we will receive a clear pass, if not like a final agreement for Ukraine to join NATO. President Zelensky today mentioned like the four points that he discussed with Jens Stoltenberg. The first one is the preparation to the next Rammstein meeting. Mm -hmm. Second is help us make the political decisions happen uh, for the wide range weapons. Third point, of course, the preparation for Vilnius and figuring out what is the like the highest, the top decision that we can get there. And fourth, of course, the security agreements and the security guarantees for Ukraine in future. Certainly, uh, the NATO Secretary General, I mean, while not promising anything, he did say things that I think people in Kyiv would be waiting to hear today. Uh, well, of course, he visited Bucha and he was extremely shocked as everybody who visits it are and he said that Ukraine's place is in NATO and many other good things that we would love to translate to ourselves as okay guys you will be in NATO as soon as this summer but we also understand that the situation is much more complicated however we also know that we live in this impossible times where impossible things possible. We have discussed with you so many times that yeah. a year and a month ago, nobody believed in all the things that are happening right now. And the candidacy to European Union, getting heavy weapons, counter-offense, getting the tank coalition, and now getting Patriot missiles, by the way, they're already in Ukraine, seemed like, and deemed 
absolutely impossible a year ago. Six months ago, they seemed impossible. So right now we stopped calling things impossible for ourselves. So our goal is for Ukraine to join NATO. It is not something that I'm telling you. This is something that is written in Ukrainian constitution. This is a will of Ukrainian people. And we are fighting to exercise this will. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, there's always skepticism when it comes to these sorts of things in Kyiv. But you're right, with all that's happened over the past 13, 14 months, there is also reason to uh, hope against hope that this may move faster than one would expect. Well, absolutely. And again, when somebody says, oh, it could be a long process for Ukraine to join NATO, we need to figure out the way and the path. My question is, okay, what, is, what do you suggest? And I do not think that as of right now, anybody has like a very good idea of how the new security system for Europe, for the whole democratic world should look like. We all know a couple of facts. First, Ukraine is a part of this new security system. Second, the security system is definitely based on NATO. And third is we already know who will be trying to break the security, right? It's not not news. It's Russia and it's potentially China. And there are many others, tyrannies, that are looking to figure out if there is a weak spot. So knowing all of that, uh, like what we have in our pocket, it should be a combination of, of all those factors. Plus, uh, Ukraine right now has the largest acting army in Europe and the only army in the modern history that has an experience of a fighting full-scale war, right? This is something that NATO will absolutely have a huge benefit of. Yeah, I mean, we certainly saw Finland and, uh, and well, potentially Sweden exceed or exceed to NATO quite quickly. It can happen. What do you then say? I mean, we've seen the political thing, the diplomatic machinations going on with with uh, President Macron and China and so forth, and there's all kinds of things shifting around. What do you say to NATO members who may be leery or at least uh, worried about what the reaction might be in Europe and, and elsewhere to a Ukraine-NATO membership? Well, my biggest question is, okay, what's the alternative to that? I do not think that there is anybody except like Russia or our enemies who will benefit from Ukraine, like being gray area in Europe, right? Especially uh, with uh, the situation when next year we will have all sets of elections mm -hmm. in the United States, in European Union, in Britain, and elections quotas in Russia. And we know that uh, political situation may change. So we need to establish as much stability, international stability as possible here. And this is why it makes all the senses. Uh, well, uh, our, our big goal is to join NATO, but also perhaps to have like a very clear path on how is it going to happen. Right. I mean, I think I can predict the outcome of. I've covered Russian elections. I think I can predict the the outcome of that one. The other ones, oh, we're not. We're you not think so? so. <laughs> we're not so we sure. We can make a bet. <laughs> we can make a bet on it. Um, the Patriot missiles. You just mentioned it. The Patriots arrived, and again, that was something that looked like it was never going to happen uh, when we first spoke a year ago. And here they are. What difference does that make? Well, first of all, it makes it, it gives us more chances to intercept and destroy the particular missiles that Russia is using uh, against us and against not uh, even the military people, but against the civilians. So it's additional lever, layer of protection that uh, gives us more chances to survive any next air raid, siren air raid attack. And it's critically important. It's like 
additional level, it is not enough to have it enough. We need the fighter jets and we have been talking about it for a while. But once we have Patriots, it uh, tells us that less of Ukrainians will die after next Russia attack. And I think it's a huge deal. It's an incredibly huge deal. Kira, it's, it's been a tough winter, I know, because we spoke right in the middle of the winter. There were attacks. The electricity system infrastructure was badly damaged. Like Canada, we're now you're now emerging from all that. What does the what do the next few months look like? We've heard about a potential spring offensive. What is the mood like in Kyiv right now? Uh, so Ben, all the things are very much. Uh, related here. Uh, the first is uh, we just like in a couple of first days of like really good weather, we had snow in Kiev just uh, three weeks ago. And right. it is an like, important point because it's important for counteroffensive. Of course, we are extremely happy that we survived through the winter. And uh, now it's a time to thank each and every person who was helping us to go through that. So uh, the spring offensive that uh, we know that we have been preparing for that, uh, our allies have been preparing us for it and helping out with the weapons, supplies, training of our troops. As our military commanders say, is it will happen when it will happen. We like, cannot put any pressure or even like a word of anticipation because we understand how complicated strategically it is. However, what we absolutely know is that it is very much related to the weather. The spring in Ukraine is similar to what I know the spring in Canada. So it will be lots of rain, mud, and it will be very hard to operate, especially the places where there are no roads. So no, it is really painful for us, but we will have to wait. And this gives all our allies some time to fill in the political promises that they had. Uh, and that sometimes there is like, you know, six months between a political statement that we will get something and a time when the Ukrainian soldier gets something. So every single day counts right now because it, it makes us stronger. It allows us to build uh, to like a really good counteroffensive. We have very high hopes. We understand as we talked with you that the next year or the year of elections will be tough because the countries and the leaders and people there will be concentrated on internal issues. We know that perhaps Ukraine will be used as a, you know, like a political bid for right. many politicians, because politicians tend to polarize when they're in the election mode. And this is why we understand that this is our key chance right now to get back as much territories as possible, liberate our people. And this is why, whatever I can tell you, we have our fingers crossed and our prayers with our soldiers. Right. We saw that Germany, Denmark and the Netherlands announced today that they would donate 14 Leopard 2 tanks as well. Uh, you know, we, we saw the leaks come out, uh, the, the leaks that emerged in America a, a week and a half ago or so. Um, they had been out there for a while. They offered a pretty blunt assessment of, of what's happening on the ground. How were those received in Ukraine? And, and I mean, I realize we've talked about this before, but time can be both uh, uh, you know, an ally to Ukraine and also an enemy to Ukraine, because as you're right, People start to divert attention. There starts to be inner conflicts between the allies and so forth. Were you were you surprised at all by some of the assessments in those documents about just how difficult a battle it's been? I'm, I'm sure Ukrainians are more aware of it than anyone else. Yeah, you know, Ben, since last year, we learned to be very skeptical about the external assumptions and uh, about ourselves, right? I want to remind everyone that 13 months ago, uh, no intelligences in the world believed that we will stand for more than a week. 
and uh, it was a matter of our survival and a matter of our huge pride, I would say historic pride, that we actually disproved uh, all of those assumptions. So right now, those leaks, they are not opening up like some uh, super new information. Russia is a country that is 10 times larger than Ukraine. They have more people in the army. They produce enormous amount of weapons and uh, they are willing to throw people as a battlefield meat. They do not care how many people they kill trying to win the war. But also there is something that we know that, that we are not only about the numbers, not only about the weapons. We are about motivation, fighting for our own country. We are about using every piece of weapons with the maximum efficiency and effectiveness because we know what we are fighting for. This is something that you cannot leak. This information is an open ban, and this is something that we are so, so, so proud. And this is what is giving us so much hope about the result of the spring fight. Well, Kira, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you, and glory to Ukraine. Yeah, big day. I mean, with the NATO Secretary General there talking about, no, I don't think that NATO membership for Ukraine is close. I mean, this is going to be a very, uh, there's a lot of obstacles in the way there. I mean, look, even Sweden's having a hard time at this point crossing some of those obstacles. But if NATO were to provide Ukraine with some sort of roadmap to membership, that would be a huge deal. That was something that was completely off the table not that long ago. And here we are talking about it in a way. And of course, uh, the, the president of Vladimir Zelensky will be at the next NATO summit in Vilnius coming up uh, shortly. When we come back, uh, we're going to dive into a really interesting book with a really interesting author. It's all about why, what's behind the paranoia, the conspiracy theories we've been seeing from lots of corners of late. Stay with us. It's a fascinating one. <laughs> It's always interesting to bring on authors who've put out interesting works, even though it may not be directly related to something in the news today. And Jared Yates Sexton, author of The Midnight Kingdom, is one of those. I'm sure over the years, you've, we've all heard the term history repeats itself, right? It is perhaps one of the best known sayings about the often cyclical nature of world events. And while we may look out at the political and social landscape of any given time, like 2023, and only see all that is unique to the moment, you know, whether be social media, how it's impacted the ability to spread messages, the, you know, the, the, the siloization of information, the way we get our information now in silos, how we become more radicalized because of it, how we hear less, we, there, you know, there is no real consensus anymore. There doesn't seem to be as much middle ground as there used to be. If we actually turned around and looked back, we'll probably recognize the similarities of much that lies in the past with what we're witnessing in the present. So of course, the past you know, decade or so, and certainly, uh, you know, with the rise of Donald Trump in the States and so on, has brought us uh, what feels like, you know, a huge a spike in these ideas of alternate reality, where facts get lost behind fabricated fictions of partisanship and power politics, and especially a lot more paranoia. I mean, are we just seeing more of it? Or has it always been with us? Has social media allowed us to pay more attention to see, to see it rise up more, allowed more people to access it? These are all chicken and egg arguments, but, you know, as much as they feel very much of the moment when you talk about stuff like QAnon and the spread of the big lie around the 2020 election, um, you know, these, the rise of these conspiracy theories, are we just noticing them more because they're more prevalent and we have more access to them? Or have they always been there? Have they always been there in some way, shape or form? My next guest says, yes, indeed, they have been here. 
forever and ever. And to better understand what we're witnessing now, you have to dig through history to find that delusional thinking that sees people reject fact to justify worldviews is nothing new, regardless of your politics. History is littered with false prophets and fake populists who've appealed to that paranoia as well. A political commentator, writer, and author, Jared Yates Sexton, lays out that case in the new book I was just mentioning. It's called The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. In it, he draws on his own upbringing in Indiana, where as a boy, he says, on Sundays, I huddle against the end of the hard wooden pews in my small Baptist church as the preachers sweated and begged God for Armageddon. The world had become too wicked too perverse. And he sees a lot of that same language now seeping into more mainstream political discourse in the U.S. and elsewhere. The view, the world, the view that the world has been tainted, society is decadent and depraved, democracy is in danger and subject to manipulation by a satanic conspiracy. All of it somehow tied into this idea that there is some greater thing above us controlling stuff, which of course, if you've ever been to anything like say, I don't know, uh, you know, the W you know, the World Economic Forum or or the WHO, you know it's not true because they can't even organize their own stuff half the time. So in doing all this, he's really trying to explain what we've seen happen, the rise of Christian nationalism, the crises we face. Um, and his research really looks into a lot of it. I won't give too much more away because in of itself, it's very interesting. Jared Yates Sexton, author of The Midnight Kingdom, joins us now. Jared, thank you. Thanks for having me, Ben. Well, the title says says it all, doesn't it? Power, paranoia, and the coming crisis. But just to sort of, you know, situate it in, in what's been going on recently, I was as always fascinated by the reaction to the arrest of the 21-year-old Teixeira in, in Massachusetts, the Air National Guardsman, uh, for these, these leaks and just the reaction, the polarization of it. And it reminded me that, you know, when I was young, you know, the Republicans were cold warriors. This was the party of Reagan that take down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. And now if you turn on Tucker Carlson or you listen to Marjorie Taylor Greene, you would think that they were they were campaigning for Vladimir Putin. How, and, and, and it goes to what you've been talking about, this idea of protecting Western civilization, how Russia sort of placed itself at the center of this. But but it all kind of fits into one giant hole of conspiracy theories and threats to Western civilization and so on. And you've seen it as sort of power, paranoia and, and a coming crisis. We are living in a time in which the status quo that I think you and I both grew up in and a lot of your listeners grew up in, that status quo that was supposed to last forever, that was without boundaries, we're reaching the boundary of that status quo and the order that we were all living within. And what happens and what I found researching the Midnight Kingdom is that whenever you reach these moments where those orders start to fray and and they're ready to give birth to something new, which is what is happening... Things start getting really weird, particularly within the right wing. They start spreading these conspiracy theories. There's white supremacist lies, religious mythologies. All of these stories are being used to try and roll back the progress of the 20th century and really move us back to a time in which a few powerful elites controlled everything and democracy was held at bay. And so what we're actually dealing with right now is sort of a metaphorical apocalypse of the political sphere. And it's been interesting to watch because, as always, what you end up with is a situation where, where I mean, America's situation is, is unique, I guess, when one watches it for, because of the, the involvement of such huge amounts of money in the political system itself. But this whole idea that that somehow the victimizers have become the victims, and it's a very interesting thing to watch. Maybe that's a too simple way of putting it. But there's a lot of grievance out there, and it's hard to figure out where the grievance is coming from. 
Well, actually, you're not wrong at all. If you actually take a look at these conspiracy theories, like let's go ahead and take QAnon because why not? You know, there's this story that like all of these children are being taken and being abused. And meanwhile, there are these white replacement theories, the idea that, you know, uh, white white people are being outbirthed by a conspiracy theory to replace them. Those are all stories that are turning the grievance around. And so white people can say that they're the ones who are being discriminated against. Meanwhile, immigrant children are being used for labor. Uh, we're seeing children being abused by institutions of power, including the state and religious authorities. And what is actually happening is that white people, particularly in America, have been so stoked into this grievance, but also paranoia by people who understand on the right and sometimes on the on the left, so-called, that that fear can be used to get them to vote for legislation and agendas that are going to go ahead and make the rich and powerful more rich and more powerful. And what happens with that, though, is it doesn't stop with that voting, right? What When you tell someone enough times that there's a war against them and their families are going to be thrown into uh, you know, FEMA camps and or annihilated, eventually they start believing you and they start picking up weapons and they start getting violent. Yeah. And when you put it that way, I mean, January the 6th, I'll be honest, watching it uh, was just flabbergasting to me uh, as someone who grew up in a, in a, in a more orderly time uh, and having seen many things over many years. That, to me, January 6th was was so outrageous um, that it was hard to kind of put it all by. That was the moment where I looked at this and thought, coming crisis. I mean, coming crisis, the crisis had arrived. Exactly. And to go ahead and make it more local, I mean, the same types of people who paid for January 6th and organized January 6th are the same types of people who are organizing the uh, truckers protest. You want to go ahead and go around the world. It's the same people who were trying to organize the attempted coup in Germany. I mean, there is a problem that is taking place in which the wealthy and the powerful have so much concentrated wealth and so much concentrated power that the only thing left for them to do is attack democracy. The question is, can you radicalize enough people in order to make that happen? And January 6th is a perfect example of that. If you actually look on the ground there, you have, of course, extremists like, uh, you know, the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters. You have the QAnon people who believe that they were there for some sort of conspiracy theory moment of apocalypse. And then you have a bunch of Donald Trump supporters who have to make the decision, am I following those people into the Capitol? The question of our time is, are they going to convince enough people to go into the Capitol and attack democracy wholesale? And so far, the results are pretty mixed, which I think people need to realize exactly how dangerous this moment is. It's at a time of complexity. We look for simple answers. I mean, it's always been such, and you you point that out. Big economies, big government, it's become ever more complex. And so all of a sudden, the simple answer like, tough on crime or woke is go, you know, go, go woke, go broke. These all seem like very simple narratives, don't they? And that's what people are struggling to find. And in some senses, there are a lot of people out there willing to sell them. Why is it that all of the people that we keep sending to our capitals to do our business through legislation, they don't do our business? If we don't understand the processes, which, by the way, are complicated on purpose to keep us from understanding them, people that we never elected are largely the ones who have power, the so-called deep state. Well, what happens throughout history is whenever you are so alienated from power, you start telling stories. And it's a lot easier to believe that your life is getting worse and your government isn't serving your interest because they're evil, because there's some sort of a larger conspiracy against you. And that's a lot easier than learning the complex uh, nature of this stuff, which, again, is complicated even for people who make their living studying it. 
Yeah, and it just it felt like it just accelerated through the pandemic. I mean, you pointed out that you know to use Donald Trump again as you called him the Rosetta Stone for the stuff uh, was it was a symptom, uh, n- not the cause of a lot of what's happened in America. I mean, I, I think what happened during the pandemic was also an acceleration a lot of, of a lot of the strangers. But you point out that that. I mean, it feels like we're living, obviously, in a different time. So the advent of social media and, and information silos and the breakdown of trust in institutions and, and the breakdown of trust in the media itself has sort of changed the circumstances now. But the changes are always happening in some different way, shape or form, right? I mean, we're we're just living in our time, but the convulsions have happened uh, in similar ways in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I learned writing The Midnight Kingdom is, and, and I know that like the, the pandemic was not the black death of Europe, obviously. But one of the things that you find there is nobody of authority could make that stop. They could not offer any sort of a solution what happened. So people started talking about, oh, the Jews have done it. The witches have done it. It's Satan, yeah. obviously. And what happens after that is there are consequences from that distrust. There's consequences from those major upheavals, including, by the way, one cycle after another of history where climate change causes things to change very, very quickly. So, you know, a lot of people will say to me, what do you think about all this distrust of our institutions? And I say, they deserve to be distrusted. They really do not serve our interests and they do not take care of us. The answer, though, about why that happens, it's not about evil. It's not about satanic conspiracies. It's that we have a corrupted system that is uh, serving concentrated capital and concentrated power. And it's a lot harder to deal with that and serve up some sort of a response to that than it is to go online and post videos and, you know, retweet tweets that make you feel good. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen that proliferate over the past few years. Jared Yates Sexton is with us. He's a political analyst and author of The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. We've been talking about, you know, just what we've seen over the last, uh, well, I mean, this it's been building up for quite a while. Let's let's put this into perspective. Uh, But, you know, a fundamental distrust of institutions in many countries, uh, an idea that somehow government no longer serves its purposes, a a vast misunderstanding of what the federal government is meant to do, by by the way, as well. And a lot of people out there, a lot of politicians and a lot of others willing to exploit that fear and confusion in these convulsive times we're living through for their own political ends. There is some optimism here, Jared. People often say you're a bit of a doomsayer, I know. Uh, But that's not to say that you don't think that democracy is A, worth fighting for and be that that fight can be won. No, and listen, I, I, I have gotten a little bit of a reputation as a prophet of doom, and I think sometimes that's well-earned, but I, I simply don't want to sugarcoat what's going on. I think over the past few years, people have basically uh, come to believe that if Donald Trump can simply lose the election, if he'll, if he'll be held accountable, then everything will fall on the line. But we have some deep, deep institutional rot that has to be taken care of. But what gives me hope is, first of all, we're having this conversation, right? We're not just sitting here on our laurels and just pretending like everything is fine. We're actually talking about some of the material conditions that have created this. But on top of that, what else history shows us is that these moments, there are conflicts, to these moments. And eventually people rise up and say, we demand to be treated better. In America, we see young people who are disregarding sort of the bipolar political system. They are engaging in solidarity. They're organizing without any education and organizing whatsoever. And let me tell you, they're racking up wins against some of the biggest and richest corporations in human history history. I think a reckoning is coming in which things are going to change. The question is, can that reckoning get here quicker than the violence of an authoritarian future? And that remains to be seen, but I do remain hopeful on that front.
One of the things that always strikes me too is that those parties, the sort of the parties of moderation that uh, that benefited. I mean, they were the obvious parties of choice during uh, globalization when the world flattened, so to speak. And it feels like a lot of them, and the Democrats in America have are, are moved fairly quickly to get ahead of this. But it feels like a lot of traditional parties are struggling to find a way to address the grievances that are indeed the legitimate grievances that are out there. And they're being caught out by populist movements to some extent who found a new way to speak to an audience that maybe would have ignored them in the past. That's exactly right. And I always tell people, you know, what's happening with Trumpism or MAGAism, whatever you want to call it, it's actually a faux populist movement, right? It's a bunch of people who have recognized that there was an opening to go ahead and manipulate people because they were waiting on a populist message. And what happens when someone like a Donald Trump becomes president? He actually only furthers globalization and, you know, uh, you know, contributes to the swamp he was supposed to drain. What we've had happen, though, is because the left in the world has been systematically eradicated and kept from power, we actually have, in almost all of these Western democracies, we have a centralized party in America, that's the Democratic Party, and what are they doing? They're guarding the status quo. We have to get back to where we were. We're not going to move forward. We're just going to make sure to protect what we have. And then you have a rightward party, which is going to go ahead and say, you know what, people can't have social safety nets. This is how it's going to be. We can't go around taking care of one another. And basically, those two poles have continued to move further and further right, which we see throughout history. So no, we don't have a lot of people who are really beginning to reckon with this, except for people outside of that bipolar system who are starting to say, listen, you are not serving our interests. It's obvious what you're doing here. As a final question, one of the things I always find interesting is that, of course, everybody on every side of these arguments, whether you think the Democrats are evil and you know you're a big Trump supporter or whether you think the Trudeau government here is corrupt and awful and we need change and the country is going down the going down the drain, or if you think the very opposite, it strikes me that almost everyone kind of wants the same thing. Yep. I mean, there is middle ground here for us to see eye to eye. There, There is. It just feels like it's it's getting harder and harder to find it. Yeah, the problem, again, are those conspiracy theories. They are very intentional and they're very weaponized. So there are these moments, again, where the order starts to break down and we see these same stories come out. And what they do is they take the the onus away from the people responsible, the people who have made the trillions of dollars over the past few decades, the people who have controlled these things, corrupted these things, and it puts them on their political enemies. And only by starting to undermine those narratives are we going to be able to come together and understand that together we're stronger, we're better, and we can actually make a difference for the future. And when you say they, I mean, we know, we, you know, we know all the big fundraisers, whether, whether it's the, we I mean, a lot of them wound up in government under Trump, whether it's the DeVos right. or the, or the Cokes and so on. Of course, they have their own, you know, they have their own demons that they like to point out on the other side, the Soros's and so on. It's it, for the un, uninitiated. It's all very hard to figure out, but, but ultimately you think they have a lot more in common than, than we do anyway. I mean, if, if you think about it there, if you think of the Elon Musk's and, and of the world, they have a lot more co- in common with other multi-billionaires than they do with the working person. Yeah, it was amazing to me that everybody was like asking me in interviews. They were like, were you shocked by Elon Musk's change in politics? And I said, no, he's the richest man in the world. He has his own private space agency. He's not going to like democracy where another person's vote is the exact same as his. I mean, they are acting in their self-interest. And we've seen this over and over from the very beginnings of corporations to where we are now. 
But we have to stop looking at all of these things popping up, whether it's legislation against trans people or banning of books. We have to understand that this is all being orchestrated by think tanks, institutes, uh, media companies, collaborators that are all being paid by these same people to carry out their agenda. And when we start to realize that, we can start moving beyond surface level politics and start to understand what is actually going on here. Jared Yates Sexton, thanks so much. Thank you. Kira's Law is about judicial education on intimate partner violence and coercive control. Kira was a sweet, innocent little four-year-old girl who loved life and should have had a full life ahead of her. We want Kira's legacy to be around child protection and around, you know, child safety. And, you know, we need to look at societally this, this issue and what can we do to, uh, to change things. That was Jennifer Kagan Viator, um, Viator rather, and that goes back to February of 2022. She was on the show with her husband, Philip, and we spoke about their fight for something called Kira's Law. Uh, this was really to prevent another tragedy, another tragic death like that of her four-year-old daughter, Kira's, in February of 2020. Uh, Kira's Law, here we are, uh, 12, 14 months later. Kira's Law, Bill C-233, had just been introduced when we spoke uh, a year ago, a year and a bit ago, uh, by Andrew Dillon, a member of parliament uh, for the Montreal area, on the second anniversary of Kira's death. Now, to put this into perspective, uh, private members' bills, they are often introduced in parliament, and very, very rarely do they become law. Very rarely are they passed. Often it's, you know, it's just, it's a way of an MP sort of expressing support and an interest in a certain topic, but very rarely do they become law. This one on Tuesday achieved what would really be its final legislative hurdle, uh, which was the Senate approved uh, Kira's Law or Bill C-233 late Tuesday. Again, it's a bill aimed at educating judges about the dangers of domestic violence and coercive control, specifically when it comes to rules around uh, visitation and parental guidance and so on uh, and custody. Here is um, that same MP, Andrew Dillon, speaking yesterday about this. I am grateful and pleased to see the immense support that the passage of this law received from members of parliament as well as the Senate and organizations, individuals and stakeholders across Canada. The message is clear. We all agree that more needs to be done to protect women and their children who are also victims of domestic violence. Bill C-233, which passed yesterday at the Senate, is a concrete step in the right direction. Just for some background here, Kira Kagan was reported missing in February of 2020 while spending the week with her 35-year-old father, uh, the weekend rather. She and her father were found dead at the bottom of a steep escarpment in Rattlesnake Point Conservation Area near Toronto. A coroner found the two had injuries consistent with a fall and referred the incident to the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee for a probe. Kira's mother said that she had tried to call attention to the danger her daughter's father presented to their child well before their deaths. She said she went to court to seek protection from Kira, for Kira from the violent and coercive behavior of her former husband. And despite evidence that was considered persuasive and compelling, a judge said it was not urgent enough to prohibit contact with their daughter. Now, this legislation will... It amends the Judges Act, so it uh, adds to continuous education for decision makers on the finer points of violence and control in family relationships. And they're also expected to consider whether a release order for an accused is in the interests of the safety and security of the child. Electronic monitoring devices can also now be a condition of release. Here's Pam Damoff, another Liberal MP. 
So Kira has started a movement that I know will, and I got very emotional, we all did last night, uh, when Kira's name was said in the Senate. And I was thinking that 100 years from now, when we're all gone, Kira Kagan will be in the House of Commons records, in the Senate records, in such a positive way that she was able to save lives. Pam Damoff there. The bill will now seek royal assent that's expected to come and is expected to come into effect 30 days following that process. So really a formality now. So 14 months after we first spoke, I really wanted to check in again with Jennifer Kagan, Viata and her husband, Philip, uh, to find out about the reaction to this uh, and, and just to talk about what a big achievement it has been and how much of it is due just to their sheer determination to see this happen in memory of Kira. And they join me now from Toronto. Jennifer and Philip, thank you for your time. Welcome back. Thank you for having us. So, you know, I immediately thought of the conversation that we had back in February uh, of last year uh, when when I read the news on on Tuesday, late Tuesday, early Wednesday morning, that this had become law because, as you know, private member members bills often don't. And I thought, wow, what what a mountain you have moved in such a short period of time. What was it like for the two of you when you got news? We were very excited uh, to learn that Kira's Law, Bill C-233, will become officially law in Canada. You know, we are so appreciative to all of the hard work of the members of Parliament involved, MP Dillon, Demoff, and Yara Sachs, to Senator Pierre Dalfon, to, you know, the Department of Justice and um, Attorney General David Lametti, who everyone who's worked really hard on this bill. And of course, it's exciting for us because we want to see these changes. We want to see women and children better protected in the family court. A woman is killed somewhere in Canada every other day. Um, and, you know, 30 to 40 children are killed a year by a violent parent. So, that this is an urgent uh, situation. Tell me a bit about the differences that will be in place because of Kira's law. What will change? So judges will receive education and training on domestic violence and in particular coercive control, which is a pattern of harm most commonly towards women and children. And that's pivotal because they will be then doing risk assessments and making decisions that are based on child safety and you know holding abusers to account as well. And I think as well that one of the more important kind of unwritten changes is the culture shift. And that's something that's relatively new uh, within the system. And I think that culture shift and culture change is going to be very important. And so listeners know, I mean, if we go back to, to, to what prompted all this, Jennifer, I mean, the, the, lawyer, the judge that you faced had no real experience in family law. And you were trying to convey to that judge the seriousness of the situation. And it seems at least according to the judge wasn't equipped to understand what you were trying to convey. So I was before Judge Justice Douglas Gray of the Superior Court of Justice in Milton, Ontario. And when I talked about the domestic violence on the stand for our trial, I was cut off and told that domestic violence is not relevant to parenting and he was going to ignore it. Talked about course of control, same thing. Talked about the, the risks and harm to a, you know what was then a two-year-old little girl. So... You know, this culture shift, the the judges receiving this education, I mean, it would have made considerable difference for our daughter, Kira. Yeah, you were trying to, at the time, you were trying to limit unsupervised access. Was that right? Exactly. I wanted um, my ex-husband's access to be supervised. Right. And and in this case, lawyers such as the one, judges rather, such as the one that you faced would, would now have this sort of education to try to understand what is it you'd like them to know? Uh, from here on in, because clearly the laws will be in place, uh, but then in practice, uh, it does have to be rolled out and so forth. What are you hoping to see change on the bench? For me, what I would really like is to dispel notions of, 
tropes such as, you know, it takes two to tango. These are two parties who just don't get along, um, stuff like that. I want them to be able to really see what the complaints are for what they are and, and stop dismissing them as minor irritants. You know, in today's society, it's no longer black eyes and bruises that I'm most scared of. It's actually coercive and controlling behavior that I'm more uh, afraid of. And, you know, when judges treat that as minor irritants and not understanding the pattern of harm and that a lot of the emotional harm and trauma that's being caused uh, cuts way deeper than any physical injury. Once they start recognizing that and more importantly, once they start understanding that intimate partner violence and course of control is relevant to parenting on a fundamental basis, that's when I think decisions will be made to better protect victims and children. And they need to be looking at lethality risk. And, you know, uh, we have data from several provinces have domestic violence death review committees. I mean, in my case, uh, we had over 22 risk factors for lethality and cases that have seven or more risk factors, cases of domestic homicide, those ones are deemed predictable and preventable. So judges need to be doing risk assessment. They need to be looking at the perpetrator's behavior. They need to be mapping that behavior over time and also holding the abuser accountable, right? Not one chance, two chance. We're going to give more chances. It's you do these things and this is relevant and you're going to get your access uh, cut off. Yeah, because I mean, I think think those, first of all, I've always been surprised, even since we first spoke, that this wasn't taken into consideration in the first place, because it seems so obvious, but I guess, I guess cultures have shifted over time, but also the, the ability of one parent to weaponize that access against another is something that we really should be looking out for at every turn. It's about the safety of the child, right? Absolutely. Correct. And And what an abusive parent will do is they will make the victim know, hey, I have your kid, I have the kids. So if you don't do as I say, if you do something I don't like, I can harm the kids at any time. And whether that's you know permanent harm that we suffered or it's just other harm, emotional harm or something else, um, they're sending that message and it needs to stop. And we need to be listening to the children in terms of, you know, especially as the children get older, what is the child saying? If the child is vocalizing concerns, um, there is that history of abuse, you know, um, we need to be looking at that as well. This has been a tough fight for you. How, how do you feel about 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 it now? I mean, it seems like there is still more work to be done. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're we're feeling um, very positive that this has passed and was the culmination of so much effort. And you know, we're really hoping and we feel confident that this will signal a change in the way domestic violence is treated by the court. And it represents a lot of hope to survivors and to you know those children in those situations where they're living in fear they're living with abuse to know change is coming and you know uh your, the voices i mean people can't speak out when they're in a case but we are speaking out for for the voiceless and elected officials are listening and are making change uh conservative mpp fe trantifalopoulos introduced kira's law motion in the ontario legislature which will um, promote the education and training on this topic for all individuals in the family court system uh, such as children's aid workers office of the children's lawyer custody assessors etc and we need to see these changes provincially um, from coast to coast yeah, when you yes, I I mean this is a federal this is federal, so there are individual in provinces it's different, right? There's still um, changes to be made or at least improvements to be made at the provincial level right across the country. And do you continue to fight for that province to province? Yeah, so so actually, um, what 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 oftentimes happens is 
once a federal law is passed, it trickles down to all the provinces anyway. So we have already gotten uh, the Ontario uh, provincial government to pass what they already called Kira's Law Motion, mm-hmm. where they have undertaken to pass similar and even more expansive laws in some regards across the provinces. When I say more expansive, I just mean because the province has carriage of some of the other players that we we want to get this education, such as Children's Aid Society workers, uh, police officers, uh, Crown attorneys, so on and so forth. Um, so it's already uh, begun to to trickle down to the provinces, and I know that there's interest in other provinces in passing similar legislation. I, I do believe that in Quebec, uh, a member of provincial parliament, uh, the equivalent, has tabled a motion uh, for Kira's Law, calling for Kira's Law in the province of Quebec. We've had some very good discussions um, in various provinces, and uh, you know, there's a lot of stakeholder organizations and individuals who want to see these changes. And, and importantly, you know, people in situations similar to what I was in for whom this cannot come soon enough. So if there's anything we can do to continue to call for this change, I mean, we're certainly going to do that. Yeah, and, and there's a coroner's inquest, I read, I believe, coming up as well. There is. That's going to examine the system failures, you know, in our daughter's uh, murder, right? So the the courts, uh, Jewish Family Child Services, uh, the various individuals and organizations who were involved in her case and really shine a further light that the province is looking at that to obviously prevent this from happening to any other child or family. Just for the two of you, I mean, this can't have been, I know you've been very, you've had You've been very public about this. You've always been willing to speak to the media, talk about talk about this with politicians. It's it's you've made a big sacrifice. It must feel like the victory, seeing victory, must really help uh, keep you motivated. Well, I think it has shown our community that there's a reason why we're doing this. That you know we're speaking to the media because we don't want what happened to our daughter to be buried and we don't want to see this happen to any other child or family. We need to share accountability and systemic reform. And so we've had to be very um, public about this because otherwise this would be covered up by, you know, the, the organizations that, that were involved. And so um, that's been very important to us. And I think that's what Kira would have wanted. Yeah, it, I, I was looking at forlittlekira.com, by the way, for listeners who want to go see a full explanation of, of, of the story, the law, and everything you'd like to know about it. Uh, so what next? What what now? Do you, do, you, do, you take a, do you savor this one briefly and then continue, or are you going to just keep on fighting uh, this week and next? I, I think I'll be fighting for the rest of my days, but, yeah. you know, it... Uh... That you know, I don't like that word either. We'll, no. we'll, you know, we want um, we want to ensure there's accountability, and we want to ensure that these measures are effective. And um, you know, we want Kira's light to continue to shine. So I think you'll see more from us. I think to the extent that we can, we can still help. Uh, we're, we'll try our best to do so. Well, Jennifer and Philip, uh, again, thank you. Congratulations on on this success, and uh, I look forward to seeing the others that come. Thank you very much. Thank you. But you have been out here for hours. If I work hard on the property now, it'll work hard for the homeowners down the road. Good thinking, McGillivray. Scott's Vacation House Rules. New season Sunday, April 23rd on HGTV. Yeah, you recognize those voices, right? It's been a chilly spring, has it not? Was it not snowing on the prairies today? I mean, it's cold here. Uh, It was snowing on Vancouver Island yesterday at some point. It really hasn't felt like, I mean, I know Toronto got a big 
Ontario got a big blast of warm weather not that long ago, and it kind of felt nice. But wow, it's been not warm uh, for the most of the rest of us so far uh, in April this year. So it doesn't feel like swimming in the lake if you're so if you're so lucky is around the corner for us, isn't it? It's truly one of that's one of the greatest Canadian experiences is a lake swim. Uh, when it's warm enough to do so. But, you know, if you need some inspiration, if you're looking to get yourself in that kind of by-the-lake mood this weekend, season four of the popular HGTV series Scott's Vacation House Rules debuts on Sunday night at 10 p.m. across the country. Uh, You may have seen it. If you don't know it, real estate investor and renovator Scott McGilvery teams up with designer Deborah Salmoni to breathe new life into a whole new crop of vacation properties this year. Some of them at least in episode one, which I managed to get a look at, are, um, wow, they need a lot of work, right? Great properties, bad cabins. I mean, I've been in, I've spent enough time in really unpleasant little cabins on really nice pieces of land. It was kind of the, the you know, it was the thing back in the 70s when I was growing up. Uh, here's a taste of episode one, again, that finds Scott helping out one of his oldest and closest friends, Blake. Blake by the Lake, as they as they say repeatedly, uh, with a rundown cottage on the Kawartha Lakes near Peterborough, outside of Toronto. We're here at Blake's Cliffside Cabin, transforming it from the worst cottage on the lake to one of the best. But that will need to include taking full advantage of the view. There's okay. the lake. There's the lake. Guys. Hi. Looking good. Look who's here. Woo-hoo! Hey. It's hey. my favorite designer. Yeah. Whoa. Did not react like that at all when I showed up. I've known these guys for 30 years. They've never congratulated me on anything. And then I walk out and they're like, Except for you. They're like, Congratulations on hiring Debbie. That was great. I'm like, That's what I get congratulated on after everything else. Best decision you've ever made. Right? Right. And we made the same decision, too, because it's Deborah Salmoni that joins us now to tell us all about uh, season four of Scott's Vacation House Rules. Deborah, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. Some really, I mean, it's not quite swimming weather yet, but you watch sort of Vacation House Rules and you think, wow, I can't wait. I can't wait for summer to come here. You must feel the same way when you see those, when you go to the spots that you go to. Exactly. Like I was just uh, up in cottage country yesterday and I was like, oh my gosh, this lake looks so cool. (laughs) All I want to do is jump in it and enjoy and enjoy the property because we have such beautiful picturesque locations where we're filming. And you're right. Right now it's not summer, but the show and all of the episodes coming up really showcase the beautiful, beautiful lakes and waterfront properties. What's nice to see too, I mean, it, and it, I was just watching the first episode for season four, is just you and Scott together. It works really well. And, you know, I worked in TV for mm-hmm. a long time. That's not easy. You can't fake that. <laughs> no, no. Scott and I certainly, um, I think we have the same sense of humor. You know, of course, when your end goal is the same, which is to give homeowners the best possible renovated home, the best ROI. And, and all of those good things, you know, we have the exact same goal, which is really, really important. Our energy levels are the same. And so when he's excited, I'm excited. <laughs> so that's really good. And I just think like the synergy between us, you know, the, the, the wealth of knowledge that he has with real estate and construction and contracting and my um, interior design expertise, it really, you know, we, we get each other. We kind of speak that same language, which is really, really nice. Yeah, and the communication's great to watch as a viewer, but it also benefits the person you're working for too at the same time because you are actually able to 
go through these what look like pretty elaborate processes uh, on TV oh, to yeah. top it with cameras rolling uh, to top it all off. You actually managed to get through it and do a good job by talking to each other a lot. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's really interesting because I'm an interior designer, right? I own an interior design studio. Scott is a contractor, right? And so our careers have brought us on to television. So it's not the other way around. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where that natural, like in an, in my everyday life, I walk through homes with contractors every day. And we go back and forth and we kind of figure out, we brainstorm, we have to pivot, we we come up with solutions. And so Scott and I do that. And it's so it becomes very natural to me as well as to him. Yeah, there's even singing in this one. There's singing in the first episode, oh, at least, to do a little duet. You know what? what? I mean. the, the singing, the rhyming, the dancing, <laughs> the <laughs> jigs, all of that is because, you know, you got to have fun. You, you, you have to have fun during this entire process. That's what life's all about. You know, we're very fortunate to be doing what we're doing. We're so passionate about this. So you don't really feel like you're going to work, right? You know, I, I definitely show up on set at the projects and immediately the energy levels are just everyone is just happy to be there we're and, and we're so invested with our homeowners we just want them to get the best possible transformation as always with this one, you are looking to help uh, transform often. I mean, in, in episode one, a, a place that <laughs> that needs a lot of work. I mean, the, the transformation oh is, is remarkable. Um, oh, yeah. but, there, but there's a lot of work to be done and and some rules, too, about how to how to turn something like a, a you know, an old cabin into something that looks really new. But also that some, something that somebody wants to rent. And there must be mm-hmm. rules there that, you, that you're looking to follow. You know, I think because, you know, maybe I'm biased, but planning your design is super, super important. You need to understand what the end goal is and how to get there, you know, whether or not it comes in phases, which is often what, you know, clients have to do, but you have to understand what the end goal is to avoid costly mistakes. Planning and then executing requires you to sit down and invest some time and energy into understanding what you want to do, what what is the end goal for this property? And so that's always like right up front, you know, us talking to the homeowners and then Scott and I having our, our sidebar conversations and my designer brain going, oh my gosh, we could do this, we could do this, we could do this. And he's like, absolutely not. We can't do all of that. We can do three things of that because it just doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't make sense for how much you don't, you can't invest this much in this area to make sense in this particular real estate market. And so that's kind of where his knowledge is just so outstanding and wonderful. So he kind of scales me back a little bit, you know, and then we go for it, which is lovely. And I I think that's very, very important. So planning your design, super important. And then of course, kind of like when it's like, be your guest, roll up your sleeves, you know, put in that sweat equity. It's really, it, it, it pays off. And whatever the project may be, how deep you want to get into it. But it's nice when you do something. And then it really, every time you see it, you're like, oh, I did that. You know, I installed that fence or I painted that that wall. I helped to install that feature wall. Whatever the, the project may be, it's really nice to put in some sweat equity. And then being your guest, I think is very, very important. I was saying earlier that sometimes when you're renovating on a budget you don't you can't or you're trying to update on a budget you can't really scale everything back and start fresh so a fresh coat of paint goes a really long way but also things like really nice bedding comfortable mattress nice bedding some slippers house coats 
beautiful towels, like those things go a really long way for being your guest and for guests to enjoy themselves and feel like they're on a vacation. So you don't necessarily need to bring everything down to the studs and rebuild. I think it's just really understanding how people like to enjoy themselves on vacation and then catering to that is what's going to help you differentiate in the, in the market. Yeah, you've explained this, that, that the way you would design your primary residence, for instance, to be more durable, or at least to be something a little bit, maybe a little more understated. But when you're, when you're, trying, when you're trying to convert a, a cottage, for instance, into a place that you'll also want to rent, you need to remind yourself that someone is going to go there, drive up there with the dreams of a great weekend, right? And you have mm-hmm. to recognize that. So you need to go bold. And that's, uh, I need to, you know, that seems like great advice to me. Yeah, create an experience. You know, when you're on vacation and you go to different hotels, it's because you want the experience of that place, that location, that design of that particular hotel. So do the same with your cottage. Lean into your geographic location, lean into the history of the property, whatever it may be. Pick a theme, run with it, go bold, have interesting cabinetry colors and fun accent walls, do something different, wallpaper, because really it's a cottage, right? You only get these little short periods of time to enjoy it. So it creates excitement. And also your listing will be, you know, it will stick out from the rest of them. So yeah, absolutely go bold, do something different. Primary residence, I like to do a little bit more, like you said, understated classic. I don't want to necessarily go with red cabinetry, but I would do it at a cottage. Yeah. In this case, in, in episode number one, this is a friend of Scott's, actually. So I, th- I think there was a bit of an advantage there. He knew who he was working with and working for. I think they've known each other since they were teenagers. But you oh, really yeah. do take inspiration from the homeowners themselves to see what it is that uh, that they'll feel comfortable, that they'll like too, right? Yeah, these homeowners invest a lot of money and trust in Scott and I. And so our ultimate number one goal is to create a property that they love, right? Because they also enjoy it. It's not only just for rental. They're going to go up there. So you kind of have to find that, strike that balance of, okay, this is your cottage. You feel comfortable and you feel personalized, but it's not too personalized because we don't want guests to think that they're staying at your cottage, right? right. So there's a, a good balance there. But yeah, Blake by the Lake is Scott's best friend. (laughs) Scott's best friend is episode one. And it is such a wonderful, heartwarming episode. And Blake is wonderful. And of course, he, you know, told us what he was thinking and what his vision was. And you kind of dive deep into it. And then, you know, we do our best to execute something that just absolutely has that wow factor that him and his children can enjoy as well as guests. And he can make some amazing income off of it you know, and, and get ahead financially. I think that's ultimately the goal. Yeah, rustic chic, I think I think you ended up with, which uh, which is certainly, I don't want to give the away. Cliffside the cabin, cliffside cabin, the cliffside cabin. I don't want to give away anything. When it comes to, to people wanting to do this themselves, I mean, when you're renting something out, you're, the, the equation changes a bit because you don't, you want it to be able to take some wear and tear, right? You want it to be able mm-hmm. to be true. You don't want to be worried about everybody that shows, every stranger that shows up in what is your no. home, right? Yeah. So when you're selecting materials, they have to be durable. Very, very important. So you could see pretty much in every episode when we're looking at flooring, it's the luxury vinyl plank flooring. You know, that stuff is indestructible. Guests and yourself can come right from the lake, run through the property, go to the bathroom, dripping wet, and it is not going to have any effect on those floors. So I think picking durable materials is very, very important. Knowing where to to save knowing where to splurge you know you don't necessarily have to do integrated appliances in your kitchen yes they're lovely to have and for your primary residence if it works within your budget it's my number one go-to to have that seamless look but for a rental property for your vacation home in your cottage go with stainless steel you could save a lot of money there right 
You want to make sure that you have some nice mattresses. So when guests arrive at your property, they're not sleeping on old rickety mattresses that you wanted to get rid of. They, they're having nice of restful sleeps, right? As long as yeah. well as yourself. I've been in a few of those um, cottages. I've been in a few of those I know. cottages. Yeah, haven't we like, all? How old is this mattress? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Old, older <laughs> my, than us often. often you know? Yeah, my back hurts. <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly ways and, and areas that you need to know where to save and where to splurge. Well, one thing that, that seems to shine through every season, you still look like you're having a lot of fun doing this. And I think that comes right off the screen for viewers. We definitely are. I love, like, it. it, it is definitely one of those shows where we have a lot of fun. We enjoy what we're doing and um, we're just so excited that it's season four and we're casting for more. So if anyone out there wants to apply, you know, HGTV Canada has it on their website. Well, Deborah Salmoni, uh, congratulations. Uh, it, it debuts Sunday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Pacific, Sunday, wherever, you, you, wherever you may be. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. And you <laughs> can watch season one to three on Stack TV. Perfect. Thank you so much again. I appreciate it. Have a good day. 